The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode 171 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, I'm extremely honored to be talking to Professor Malcolm Crisp, who is the head of the School of Energy, Infrastructure, and Society, Harriet Watt University. Joining him today is five of his master level students who explored a possible Celtic crossing, a floating underwater tunnel connecting Scotland and Northern Ireland. They are Ian McDonald, Dan Merrick, Joel Meggs, Roy Saunders, and Gavin McKay. I'm your host for today's episode, Chris Knudsen, and I'm a senior program manager and civil engineer designing and delivering major infrastructure programs and projects for defense clients across the UK, US, and the Middle East. And I've got more than 27 years of professional experience in program and project management in the defense infrastructure section and currently work as a consultant based out of the UK. And I'm really excited to be back here on the Civil Engineering Podcast after a year or so away doing consulting work. Now I'd like to Introduce our main guest for this show today, uh, Professor Malcolm Crisp, who I mentioned earlier is the head of the School of Energy, Infrastructure, and Society at Harriet Watt University. Uh, he leads a team of academics, researchers, and students on campuses in Scotland, Dubai, and Malaysia, tackling key problems identified in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And as a civil engineer working in industry and academia for over 35 years, and we'll include the bios of each of the students in the show notes for the episode. Now, before we get started, the show is free, and our sponsors help us keep it free, so please support them. And I'd like to recognize and welcome back our sponsor for this episode, ACI. Are you a member of the American Concrete Institute? ACI is a worldwide community of 30,000 professionals, educators, and students in more than 100 countries. It's the premier global community dedicated to the best use of concrete. And starting on January 1st this year, ACI launched a new member benefits. ACI members now have free access through annual subscriptions to all ACI University live webinars, free access to over 260 on-demand courses, and unlimited access to the Institute's practices, including all ACI guides and reports and symposium volumes. ACI members push the concrete industry further, adapting to new technology and investing in their careers, and are dedicated to improving concrete design, materials, and construction. You do not have to be an ACI member to work in concrete industry, but if you want to exceed expectations in it, there's no better place to be than with ACI. Now, whether you are a student just starting or have years under your belt, ACI membership ensures that no matter what changes the world brings, you will be prepared to thrive and your life's work will last for generations. Right now, ACI is offering a $30 discount on new individual and young professional memberships. Student memberships are free. You can join us today at concrete.org forward slash podcast 30. That's concrete.org forward slash podcast 30. 30. Let's dive into this episode of the Civil Engineering Conversation. Again, very excited to be back with you and excited to dive into this topic. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our Civil Engineering Conversation for the week, and I'm joined with a, a large group here and uh, very excited to have the whole team on board here. Professor Chris, thanks for you uh, uh, taking the invitation to join on here, and uh, we're looking forward to talking with all of you here on the Civil Engineering Podcast, so welcome. Thanks for asking us, Christine. Appreciate it. 
We have uh, a number of questions here, and I think this should be a very good discussion that we're going to have. So, Professor, we'll start off first by allowing you to maybe just tell us a little bit more about this floating tunnel concept, what it is. A lot of our audience is going to be back over on the other side of the pond in the U.S. They may not be familiar with what uh, all the different discussions that are going on. So just if you could maybe just orient us to what the project is and give us a little more insight on what this floating tunnel is. Let me just first set the scene. So here at Harriet Watt University, our graduates need to be future ready. Technologies are changing rapidly. Our students need to be able to deal with that and, and explore the latest theories and the latest practices. The external landscape is becoming rapidly globally connected and our students need to deal with that. So our campuses on the, in Scotland, Malaysia and Dubai need to work together, bringing these multinational teams together to solve problems. And obviously the sustainable uh, development goals from the UN are asking us to connect with people, society, communities. So um, the projects that we're working on at the minute need to develop the skills, these skills in our students, and they need to be able to work for the communities they're designing. This particular project um, that we're working on this morning, uh, describing this morning, it forms part of the final year for our students studying masters of engineering in civil engineering and in structural engineering. Uh, these are fifth year students and they're encouraged to build their own independence, selecting their own project areas. The students uh, this year have come up with a whole range of innovative projects, but some of them are looking at the electrification of our motorway systems to allow in-journey charging of electric vehicles. Some are working on residential property developments in flood risk areas as a consequence of climate change. And others are, are working in sustainable energy, looking at matching uh, offshore wind, intermittent supply to intermittent demand of communities. The team I brought along this morning, the five students that are with me, they've been concentrating on the connection, the fixed crossing between Scotland and Northern Ireland, and that's termed the Celtic crossing. And clearly, the opportunity for business and political development in our region and the fixed link between the two islands would be a potential major investment for the future. So governments, engineers, professions are really keen to find out what's happening. But clearly for us, there's a lot of technical learning around this project. And in this case of the floating tube particularly, there's a lot of uh, new technologies coming into this out in Scandinavia, uh, it's been looked at and explored and our students decided to go off and uh, explore the application of that into the Celtic crossing. But the key objective is to push the student into areas of knowledge that they haven't previously come into. So they set up checking processes, working as in the same way as professional practice does, setting up professional checking techniques, resourcing their own knowledge. And then as civil engineers are supposed to do in terms of civil, connect in with the community and then judge the project impact on the communities, both on the island of UK, England, Scotland, Wales, but also on the island of Ireland itself. So really interesting opportunities for the future. And that's the, the background to the project. Thank you for uh, laying that out. And, and you're absolutely correct. What an interesting and uh, innovative project to be able to have your uh, opportunity to, to use as part of your capstone project before you all head off into industry. Joel, could you please talk to us a little bit more about the design considerations that you had to take on board for the project? And why did you end up with the utilization and kind of moving towards this submerged floating tube tunnel? I mean, we've submerged floating tube bridge. 
a lot of people are used to under, you know, hearing about tunnels. Many are going to be familiar with the channel and some of the other major uh, projects that have been done using TBMs, but not necessarily this uh, submerged floating tube bridge. So could you share a little bit more about insight on how we ended up with that? The major design considerations can really be brought down to the weather and the depth of the crossing. So the RFC is famously rough with like high waves and very strong winds. Typically, the crossing gets down to about 150 metres, but then towards the Scottish side, there's a big trench called Burford's Dyke, which goes a further 150 metres down. It's also been a munitions dump since the Second World War, so there are quite a few unexploded bombs down there. Those are the main sort of drivers towards finding a solution. We originally thought of using floating bridges. They're quite popular in America, but the longest one we found was, I think, two and a half kilometres and over quite a calm lake. So it, it wouldn't fit with the rough seas and the almost 40 kilometre crossing we're thinking here. We then move on to more traditional piers, and it is possible to build foundations that deep. There's a the Chol A platform has a 300 meter long foundation, but it costs, I think, a few hundred million dollars, and we'd need at least sort of 12. The cost sort of skyrocketed using traditional bridge techniques. Plus, the weather would mean it had to be closed maybe sort of 100 days in a year. We then started thinking along the lines of the channel tunnel, and we could dig under the ocean, but given the, the depth of the dike, we'd need to go so far inland to sort of even out the angle of the tunnel. I think you're only allowed sort of a a two or three degree incline just to allow the trains to travel there. It was no longer an ocean crossing. It was sort of halfway into the country and it just, the length was enormous. So we needed a, a solution that sort of combined these two, but was better. And over the course of the research, we discovered the SFTBs, mostly in, in Norway at the moment, but they um, hesitant to use the word perfect, but they fit the solution really well. So we, we can sink them sort of, it's 30 meters from the surface of the water to the top of the tunnel. And that's a large enough distance that any weather, any waves, any ship passing over has basically no effect on the tunnel. And we can have tethers to the bottom of the ocean floor that there's one in Norway that has, um, or tethers in Norway that go up to a kilometer down. So the 300 meter length is, is nothing to them. It, yeah, it worked really well for the, for the crossing. It was quite an accident to stumble across it, but it was a very happy accident. Ian, maybe tell us a little bit more about the history of uh, SFTBs, because this is, uh, I think for a lot of listeners, this might be the first time they've ever even heard of uh, of this type of a technique. And then maybe some of the current ongoing international projects. I know Joel just mentioned you know, some work up in Norway, but I'd be curious to know if, if this type of system is utilized anywhere else outside of Europe. So it's actually been around for quite a long time. It was first patented in the UK, actually, in 1886. Uh, by naval architect and MP Sir James Edward Reed. But it wasn't really thought about again until the 60s when it was some Norwegian engineers were brought together uh, for a feasibility study. And they managed to design a 1,500-metre crossing in Norway. And it was the kind of first actual thought-out design for an SFTB. But then when it came to the 80s, four top contractors in Norway were given funding from the Norwegian Public uh, Roads Administration to design a 1,400-metre long bridge that went 150 meters deep um, in a fjord and they were then awarded to create large-scale models of these SFTVs. These were then designed and then constructed and then research was done to see if there was any overlooked issues or any significant anything wrong could happen with them and there wasn't any issues with the design at all which was then further confirmed by an independent group of internationally recognized scientists in the 90s. 
So essentially, there was nothing wrong with the design of SFTBs. They could definitely work. And so that kind of brings us up to today, where in Norway for the E39 at Jernafjord, in 2014, it was commissioned for an SFTB to be designed and impossibly constructed. Sadly, that actually lost it to more traditional uh, floating bridge, I think they went for. But essentially, it got to the point where they were like, yeah, we could definitely construct this. But apart from that, it's mostly just been research gone into SFTBs, specifically over in China in the Zhongzhou uh, Strait and the Jintang Strait, and also in Europe and Italy as well. There was actually also one point in Indonesia in 2004 where it was actually also going to be constructed. But then once again, I kind of think it was maybe a suspension bridge was chosen over it. So essentially, a lot of the time, because it's such a novel structure, they, can, they tend to just go for the more traditional forms of bridges rather than actually using this, even though potentially it can save massive amounts of money, less material, and just because they're so unsure about how it would actually perform in reality, they tend to just go back to the sort of normality, which is maybe not the way that we should be thinking about, considering that the benefits could be massive yeah, using this design of bridge. Dan, let's shift over to you. I, I'd be curious if you could maybe set out, you know, there's, you've set out as you were going through this, setting out two different towns on, on either coast. And I'd be curious to hear what was the process behind the decision to curve the SFTB. And we've already talked about Burford's Dyke and what that is. What was that process? And what were some of the other considerations, both uh, geographical, topographical, and other aspects like that, that led you to determining the alignment as you did? I'll start by saying this was kind of very much an iterative process for us. Uh, we started off with a number of different options for locations of towns to, to span. And myself and Rory set out a process of, of elimination of determining kind of suitable locations for the SFTB to reach landfall on either coast. The majority of these decisions were based on where there are existing transport networks. Um, but we also wanted to obviously consider the closest in terms of the shortest distance to cross for obvious reasons. We ended up choosing the northern Irish town of Lern and then the southwesterly town of Port Patrick in Scotland for several economic and social factors. Um, we also realised that we couldn't just kind of plonk these stations in the middle of these towns. I believe the total population of Port Patrick is, is less than a thousand. So it'd be incredibly kind of insensitive to the integrity of the local area to put these kind of large stations in the towns themselves. The towns are they're kind of therefore both relatively strategically located. Um, for example, Lern is around half an hour from Belfast in Northern Ireland, which we felt was, was really, really important to connect to those existing road networks. Then we also had to consider that be a significant runoff by the time we reached the coast. So as Joel mentioned, off the top of my head, I believe the maximum allowable gradient is around 1.5 degrees for the freight trains. So after a few calcs, we realized that the stations would have to be set back around five kilometers from the coast on each side. And then, as you say, we also decided to curve the route on the land to avoid any disruptions to the, sound, to the towns themselves um, due to tunneling. The curve of the SFTB was very much a product of geographical limitations, but also to kind of reduce the impact from the lateral environmental forces um, using an inherent strength of a curved arch to provide that resistance. And as for Beaufort Stike, I can't pretend to have any kind of first-hand experience, although I can imagine that would be a very interesting scuba dive. What we found online, the, the dike is a, a natural trench between Northern Ireland and Scotland, and it's actually closer to the Scottish side than, than the Northern Irish side. The dike is around 50 kilometres long, stretching north to west, and around 3.5 kilometres wide, considering our kind of 40 kilometres span of total reach. And then, as Joel said, it's around 200 to 300 metres deep in, in some locations. 
we identified the dike pretty early on in our project as a kind of significant hurdle to navigate and what we could with kind of the data available to us um, to understand more about it, where it was positioned and what we could do to kind of mitigate any risks involved. We kind of approached this with this kind of sourcing bathymetry data to kind of map out a better idea of where the dike is actually kind of located in practice. And then we use this to tweak our route and avoid the deepest parts of the dike. What we found actually early on is from this mapping process that a direct route from Lern to Port Patrick would actually put us directly in line with some of the deepest areas of the dike, um, according to this bathymetry data. And so then this kind of fed back into our decision to curve the SFTB around these deepest locations. In our final report, we actually proposed that if a feasibility study were to be explored further, then some of the next stages would should be a kind of full technical survey of this area to get a complete idea of the severity of the risks, where they're located. See, the outcome of this, this in-situ survey would significantly impact the location of um, the anchor pile foundations as well. Every project has got a, has, certainly has technical aspects that have to be taken on board. And for civil engineers, those tend to be the, the normal elements that a lot of uh, engineers will focus on, specifically will be those technological pieces. But with this project, the other piece that gets spelled out is not only the issues of, uh, you know, Professor, as you mentioned, the, you know, the UN SDGs, but then also taken in the social aspects, you know, what's the impact on the local populace in either one of those locations. And for anyone that's been up in those areas and for myself, even having, well, I grew up in Northern Michigan, but I grew up in a very small town. And to think about the fact where you may be in a small town of less than a thousand people. And all of a sudden now you've got this you know major infrastructure that that's being put in where there's going to be such a, a heavy uh, burden. It can be uh, pretty overwhelming and quickly erode the social aspects that are in that area. Gavin, yeah, this is, starts to set up the next couple of questions, which really get us into the discussions around there's technical aspects, but I'd like you to tell us maybe a little bit more about, as we were looking at the, there's the geographical aspects, we're talking about um, some of the social aspects. Talk to us a little bit more about the environmental bodies that you had to interface with and, and, and kind of consider from a stakeholder, not only stakeholder management process, which is something that comes up a lot in project management, but let's look at this from a stakeholder engagement. And how do you get those environmental bodies, you know, not as pushing against this, but more supportive of it in relation to, as Ian unpacked for us, you know, these different, more maybe traditional construction methods. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and the environmental aspects? The tube actually passes through two areas of scientific importance and near a third one, which uh, would be a normally a major concern for most projects and was for ours as well. The uh, two of the areas that we passed through were special areas of conservation, which are pretty much tops or places of no-go sort of uh, construction. So we really had to think about how we would limit how badly we disturb the animals that were located in these sort of areas. We did this through choosing our construction phases and timing them appropriately to complement the migration patterns of the animals that are actually located in the areas. So the for example, we chose that we do the construction in the sea areas to limit the number of, during the summer, to limit the amount of disturbance because the animals are generally located there in the winter. And we also chose the fans and so the deck and dampeners and fit silencers on fans. And furthermore, the stiffness of the tethers used are actually, actually mitigated a lot of the vibrations that would necessarily disturb the animals as well. Largely, the bodies that we actually communicated with was SEPA, the Scottish Environment Protection Agency. Representative that we spoke to actually gave us some great advice um, regarding the areas um, to look out for mines, water tables, and what to do with the excess aggregate uh, that we removed from the boring processes. And they decided the tunnel. 
you've really told us that we should focus on the environmental aspects from the beginning so that we'd actually mitigate any problems that we could foresee in the future. And we uh, really took that to home, making sure that these, you know, we took these into account, all these potential problems. And I can see that this, from an environmental aspect, the planning aspects and feasibility uh, studies that would have to be taken undertaken would be pretty substantial. So it's good that you started that process early and in reaching out to that, which would become a very key stakeholder in the final decisions on this. Rory, I'd be interested if maybe you could further go along. So environmental aspects are going to be very important. Different bodies associated with that would be a, a very key stakeholders. The other key stakeholders in this are going to be the uh, you know, kind of the national politicians and maybe business, et cetera, some of the entities that would end up ultimately becoming financiers for an ambitious effort such as this. I'd be interested to hear if you could unpack for us a little bit more about stakeholder engagement on the political side and how does that or how would it affect uh, design, uh, coming up with different designs that would be able to suit their needs and more importantly, get their buy-in and their support for both finance and approvals? Within our uh, government setup, we've got different politicians involved. Uh, we've got members of the Parliament of Westminster and then also the local parliaments, the devolved administrations in uh, Holyrood in Scotland. Uh, so we spoke to Samuel Wilson, who's the Member of Parliament for East Antrim uh, on the Northern Irish side. He was really helpful. Uh, we spoke to him for about an hour uh, one day over an online meeting. We proposed our, one of our locations to him and he gave us honest feedback on that. And we used that to then feed that back into the sort of iterative loop that Daniel mentioned. So that changed our location plan. Uh, we were thinking of going sort of further south, um, south of Lon, and then instead used a site just outside. The, the site that we'd originally chosen was an even smaller town and would face a lot of sort of local opposition and um, environmental restrictions. Uh, we spoke to Finlay Carson, the member of Scottish Parliament for Galloway and West Dumfries. He really highlighted the issue in that area of Scotland uh, that the roads just aren't to scratch. Um, they would need a lot of investment already. And if we were to be building a sort of massive infrastructure as this would be, the roads would need huge levels of investment. So we fed that back into our project, um, put aside a section that we can't sort of look at all of the roads in detail given the time restraints on this project. But it was something that we put aside and sort of highlighted that was a major part of any infrastructure project um, like this would need uh, road networks to it that are adequate. He pointed us in the direction of the A75 and A77 action groups, and we spoke to them through emails. They were less keen on the idea than the politicians. They were quite happy with what they've got now uh, in terms of the ferry and HGVs, haulage crossing, um, using the ferries. They were sort of more worried about how a change in that ferry industry would affect their jobs. And we wanted to stress that it wouldn't be overnight shutting off the ferry industry. What we're proposing would be an alternative to provide some competition and potentially in the long run, it would make the ferry industry better, sort of having a bit of competition and also better access across the uh, Irish Sea. We spoke, tried to speak to the Transport for Scotland. They are very interested in this project, understandably. They said they're looking into it themselves as part of the UK-wide union connectivity review. That was across the whole of the UK, uh, various issues, one of which is trying to sort of a physical crossing across the Irish Sea, and they were running a call for evidence. We uh, submitted a 10-page report into them, um, sort of looking at our general findings. And a few weeks later, they asked for our full-page report. Uh, so we signed that into them um, for them to sort of look at and try and sort of almost use us as a stakeholder and sort of feed that back into their project. Obviously, the general public are a massive, massive part of it as well. And we got some media coverage around Christmas uh, in a few newspapers. 
we use the online articles for those and look through the comments sections, which are quite entertaining, seeing sort of a full range of ideas that people had about the uh, about the project. But we could generally see there were a few themes that came up and we made notes of those themes, what real concerns people had about it, made sure that they were addressed within our project, within the report, uh, just to make sure that the general population that would be the main users of this sort of infrastructure would be happy with what we'd provide. Especially major infrastructure projects like this, it's again, it's the technical aspects are, are one thing, but the mm-hmm political and the social and the environmental and all these other aspects that come into what makes and what marks a uh, substantial infrastructure project as being successful can often be the, the maker or break point uh, on that project going forward. I have one last question for each of you, and I'll, I'll kind of run through each of you and give you a chance to answer on it. But let us all know, you know, as you went through this whole process and as it's, it's played out and you've had some press and uh, opportunity to interface with different uh, with politicians and uh, different environmental groups and interest groups. What is one thing that you took away from this whole process and the, this experience that you think is going to be beneficial to you in your engineering career as you move forward? I'll give you a chance to think about that one. We'll start first with Ian. Just the fact that it's important to take a holistic view on everything to do with a civil engineering project. So you can't just focus on the structure itself. Every part of it is important. Yeah, especially really, really large projects. Communities will be affected, so you have to take that into account. And the external environment will be affected. Um, So yeah, just pretty much that everything needs to be taken into account and everything's just as important as the structure itself. Good observation. Joel? Uh, Yeah, I think my sort of highlight of the project was the the stakeholder engagement. That's where I feel like it really made our shine in a way. Like Rory said, we spoke to MPs and MSPs on other sides, and they had some really concrete advice on how to make the the project work for their communities and so it became less of a theory and more of a okay we're working with the communities how can we use this with them that was really useful i think to feel to put it in a grounding in the real world gavin how about you i mean i've got similar thoughts to yon and joel but on a different note it was ability that we actually managed to get so far into this project that was actually quite shocking to me i mean it was at incredibly impressive how far we got along because uh usually you can't at the beginning of the term we couldn't fathom uh getting nearly as far as where we got to i mean we're in the national press and we're now on a podcast it's actually incredible how far you can get with a strong team and uh, working well together dan what did you take away from this experience i guess i'll have to kind of mirror what the other guys have said I think we can commend ourselves as a team as kind of our collaborative input. So kind of like each week we got together, did a kind of debrief of what we did, we'd kind of we completed in that week, what we were happy with, what we needed to change. And I think that allowed us to kind of develop our projects in a lot more kind of a positive way where we could kind of isolate things that we didn't understand, seek out any individuals out there and kind of reach out to them, use a kind of professional network to find out that information that we didn't know. And I think the fact that we very kind of open to communicating with other stakeholders and individuals who were kind of a lot more well aware of this topic that allowed us to kind of grow and develop our own kind of ideas. And I think without that, then we wouldn't have got so far. And I think that's definitely something that I'll take going forward. And Rory, how about yourself? What's uh, stuck in your mind is uh, pretty noteworthy. For me, I think it would be sort of how ambitious we've been when we start in September. I can't, speaking for myself at least, wouldn't have thought I'd be sat here in, well, we're now March, still going on a project that finished at the end of the first semester and talking to a podcast and to be in sort of national press, um, actually speaking to politicians just for what we started as a, as a university design project, really sort of being ambitious and working on it relentlessly 
how far you can go sort of speaking to people and really engaging with them sort of picking a topical project um, that's really relevant and how interested people are and how people want to sort of want to know and want to help um, projects like that I think that's for me sort of what's stuck. Professor, in your opinion, how do you see that this project has benefited the students? And we've had an opportunity to hear from each of them, and it, it sounds like it's, this has been an unexpected experience for each one of them, but you've had a chance to work with a lot of students over your career. How do you see this as being the benefit to, to each of these gentlemen? As I described before, there's numbers of groups uh, that we've got working across the whole uh, civil engineering landscape uh, at Harriet Watt, and, and many of them have had their own successes. That obviously, the, the, the particular group we're talking with this morning, they're working in a world that you yourself, Christine, described was really disruptive for engineers, dealing with a whole range of different factors. These guys are handling complexity. They're not just handling complexity and ambiguity. They're actually thriving on it. You can see there this morning that they're really on top of this. So for me, that was really, really rewarding to see them being able to to cope with these things. We put them under massive amounts of pressure and stress. And it's about self-belief. And they've come out the other end really believing in their skill set. Modest and humble as well, but really, really driving forward. For me, I think the resilience, resourcefulness, the ownership of the project, you know, clearly it's not my project, this is their project. They really understand it. And, and consequently, I said at the start, what we're about making our graduates future ready at Harriet Watt University. I think you know, these students are clearly future ready to get out into the, the workplace and make a huge impact. That's really, really rewarding to see. Yeah, Professor, I've got one last question for you. What advice would you give and provide with engineers out there that are considering a career in engineering? So this might be aimed at younger university students or those that are, are still looking to maybe choose a career. What might you share with them to give them uh, some ideas about why they consider engineering? I think we're in really exciting times, actually. It's, uh, we've described a rapidly changing world. The public really are demanding uh, that we live much more in harmony with the natural environment. We've heard uh, Greta and her fellow youth really concerned about how we actually engage with the planet and who were really painfully aware of the shortcomings maybe of mankind's historic approach. So now more than ever really is the time for engineers to stand up and really interface. Uh, We're at the interface of the global community and environment, and we need to pull that together. Society is really demanding us to do that, and, and for professional engineers to stand up, I think this is the time. That's what we need to get the message out there to school leavers and to young engineers coming through. So If you are a school leaver, passionate about community, passionate about environment and influencing how we design the future of our planet, then engineering has to be a rewarding choice for you as a career. So I think, you know, now is the time for engineering to stand up more than ever and make an impact. Great perspective and great words. And I I would agree with you as well. There's opportunity for each of us as civil engineers to make a a true difference and impact uh, on life, even if it's just in our local community. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, just it's an unlimited opportunity, I think, for each of us. And and for you gentlemen, as you uh, prepare to depart uni and head off into the real world, as it were. For me, it's rewarding to have had a chance to spend some time with all of you and, and hear about this great experience that you've created for yourselves. But the fact that you'll be able to take that into the uh, you know the proverbial real world with a strong understanding of, of the impact that civil engineers can have when they work as a team and put their heads together. So 
I wish each of you individually and as a group best of success as you move off into the next stage of life. And Professor, congratulations to you for one of what sounds like very many teams of highly qualified civil engineers that you've sent off into industry, into other areas. And I, I applaud you for the level of effort and the work that you put into it. So each of you, congratulations. You're to be commended. Thanks. Thank you for everyone that's uh, had a chance to, to share some time with us today. Hopefully you found this as an amazing experience uh, as I did and the opportunity to speak with all of them. We'll leave it there on this podcast. I wish each of you the best again. I suspect that this won't be the last time we hear about this concept for the uh, submerged floating tube bridge. So to each of you, all the best. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thank you. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, everyone. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I, I know I certainly did. I enjoyed talking with Professor Crisp and uh, each of the students, uh, getting a chance to, to know them, but more importantly, get a chance to know and learn more about the Celtic Crossing project that they did for their uh, really their senior project, capstone project uh, in university. You know, it reminded me uh, as we were talking with them. A lot of the other projects that were envisioned by civil engineers over 100 years ago, back in the 1800s, projects that were brought to us by uh, Brunel, Bazalgette, uh, Roebling, Gerthels, the Panama Canal, the Brooklyn Bridge, the London Sewer System, and, and much more. It was really uh, inspiring to hear the experience that these young engineers have and what they'll have an opportunity to do as they go throughout their career as either uh, consultants, maybe back in the academia or whatever it might be that they get involved in. Also happy to be back hosting the uh, uh, Civil Engineering Podcast. Uh, I have a kind of looking towards maybe an opportunity to be able to come back with you more often as schedule dictates and as uh, opportunities come up. Again, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, find uh, the show notes from today's uh, interview at com. Just look for episode 171. That's civilengineeringpodcast.com. And there you're going to find a summary of uh, everything we talked about. You'll see not only the bios for the five students, uh, but you'll be able to get access to some resources, websites, and any of the books that were caught, uh, brought up and mentioned during the episode. So again, thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining our guests. And I wish each of you the best in your civil engineering career. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.